Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm just confused as to, like, who are these people? Like, how... And then houses get snapped up in a day. It's like, what am I doing wrong? Where is this cash coming from? Like, it it boggles my mind. As a homeowner, my equity is skyrocketing. My home has doubled in value in five years. But that also is insane. Today, we had, I guess, 18 people or so here just for this one bedroom here clamoring to sign a lease. People will go out, and once they get a hang of it, they'll start buying property, and then they just get into buying property, and then they just, it's almost like a drug. Every single day, um, I get some real estate advertisement um, or a request to sell in my mailbox. They're going to lose the home one way or the other. It's much better if a local investor can buy the property and convert it into a home that another family can use. All the time we hear, you know what, gee, I've, I've held on to this property for 30 years and now it's time to sell it and I don't know what to do. And so that's where we come in. On a Crenshaw Boulevard. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. There goes the neighborhood. Sometimes when change comes to a neighborhood, it's quiet and subtle. Other times, it's loud and blunt, like a pickaxe punching through drywall. Peter Schulberg is starting demolition work today on a house he's just bought in Los Angeles's Jefferson Park neighborhood. Largely Latino and African-American, Jefferson Park is just south of the Santa Monica 10 freeway between downtown and LA's west side. It's opening up the house to you know, what it would have been. Like other homes on the street, the house is a small, century-old craftsman cottage. And it's been worn down by neglect and some really bad renovation work done over the decades, like a popcorn ceiling added in the 1970s and a dining area that's been turned into an illegal third bedroom. So Peter is gutting it and restoring the home to its original condition and charm. Every house, no matter how small, has a little soul to it, and what I find when I come into these places, is it's about trying to give them back the kind of hope they had when they were built. But Peter isn't purely motivated by architectural altruism. He's one of those people who buy broken-down houses, fixes them up, and resells them at a higher price. I am a flipper. I, I kind of cringe a little bit whenever I admit that. But yes, that's what I've been doing for the last four years. Why the cringe? Well, Peter says flippers like him are at least partly responsible for jacking up Los Angeles' already high home prices. And what's your timeline, roughly? Uh, I'm hoping, I always say three months, it's always five months. He knows if he adds value to a home by flipping it, that will increase the price of other homes in the neighborhood. And that will make it harder for working people to buy or rent in the area. And prices here are already high, even for old homes in Jefferson Park that need a ton of remodeling. This house was $578, which is much more than I've ever spent on any house. I mean, that's what's happening is a year ago this would have been $478, three years ago this would have been $350. I mean, it's just gone crazy. Eva Aubrey's seen the craziness. She's lived in the neighborhood since the 1950s and says now the flippers are always circling. Every single day, 
every single day. Somebody wants me to sell my house. Somebody wants to know if I want to get a loan on my house. They want, they want to give you everything, but they want my house. I'm Saul Gonzalez, and you're listening to There Goes the Neighborhood L.A. Flipping used to mostly be associated with the suburbs, especially during the Great Recession. That's when more than 9 million people nationwide lost their homes. But now the supply of foreclosed houses in the burbs that flippers used to scoop up cheap has dried up. So flippers are moving into cities. 1,345,000 to the bid now, 50. 1,350,000. About 70 property hunters are in this darkened hotel conference room south of downtown LA. It's a property auction, and many in the room are flippers, bidding on bank-owned houses in and around Los Angeles. 100% of the funds that you want to bid and buy with, you must have on your person. Chris Demarest is with Auction.com, the company that runs the auction. There is no time allotment to go to the bank to get more. You can't run to your partner on the other side of the hotel. You can't even go to your car to get more money. So you can only bid with what you have within the room. And that's, that's a strict, strict rule. Jonathan Rios is a full-time flipper, always on the hunt for new properties and loving the chase. We almost think of it as treasure hunters. And it's like the, the, the homestead, boom, you know, they shoot it off. And once they find out what an opening bid is, everyone runs to the property, tries to see what the appraised value is, what the rehab is going to be what kind of title they have on the property. And, you know, everyone has a team, and it's basically every team on a treasure hunt is what it's like. Jonathan works for Wedgwood Incorporated. It's a Redondo Beach company that claims to flip about 3,000 properties a year. And Jonathan has specific orders from his bosses. Find houses that can earn the biggest profits on resale and don't overbid. I want to buy every property for a dollar. <laughs> it's... Ideal. That's the ideal. That's ideal. That's basically, I want everyone to just hand me properties and titles for deeds and then just walk away and high-five me and say, have a good day. If it makes dollars, it makes sense. And final call, $1,387,500 another bid. And that's going to be sold at $1,385,000. Subject to receipt of funds at one Honestly, this area is a, is a great place to look. And also, it's one of the last places in L.A. proper where you can find an affordable flip that makes sense. I'm back in L.A.'s Jefferson Park neighborhood talking to Dave Fink. He's with an L.A. real estate company that's trying to flip an 830-square-foot stucco house on a corner lot. The price on this is 680 680 680 Yeah, 680 yes. So for that price, I would say it's a pretty fair steal. Dave's company bought it for $460,000. It's making less and less sense in Silver Lake, Echo Park, Eagle Rock, because all those houses, you can no longer get those, you know, at a really low price. Now you're paying a premium for them, and you're going to have to put money into them. So it just doesn't make sense. You can't get as big of a return. So this area, if you're looking to get a return on your money, this is the area to go to. And we're seeing it. I mean, houses are going fast here. According to Adam Data Solutions, the hottest zip codes for flipping in Los Angeles are all in South L.A. That's right. In some South L.A. zip codes last year, 20% of houses sold were flips, three times the Los Angeles average. And who's buying the flip properties? 
When did you When did you move in? Uh, summer of last year. Oh, okay. So you've been Many of them are 20 or 30-somethings looking for their first house, but who can't afford the prices in other parts of L.A. I was living in Los Feliz, working in West Hollywood, you know, so... Coming down here to South L.A., it was a big change. And That's James Blackman, 29 years old and originally from New York. He works as an actor, filmmaker, and bartender. James is a self-described hipster, and he has to look down, from tattooed arms to his knit beanie. Like they say, there's always something to do, always a project. They were so right about that, as you can see. Last year, after renting in L.A. for six years, James bought a flipped house near Central Avenue in South Los Angeles for $360,000. So the importance of this place is I'm becoming an adult in my own way, not the traditional way. Like, I know the traditional way has always been like, oh, yeah, get a house, get a car, you know, white picket fence, all that. I kind of did it through the back door because I don't have a traditional job but I still was able to get the house. And I feel pretty damn good about that. James's house is pretty no frills on the outside. But inside... They did, uh, you know, put all the bells and whistles that made people think like, oh man, this house is amazing. Gas rain stove. They did some trendy things like high-end engineered laminate. People go crazy over that, you know, the... And that kind of gray shade that's really popular right now. Right? Yeah, yeah, with all the laser etching that makes it look like real wood. It, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like things like that, like, impress potential buyers. And along with adding design bling, flippers know they also have to talk up neighborhoods, boasting to potential buyers that if they're not cool now, they soon will be. A few miles west from James's place, Dave Fink describes the community surrounding the property he's trying to sell. If you're from L.A., I'd describe it as uh, it's like Echo Park and Glassell Park and Eagle Rock five to ten years ago, right before it started to really get gentrified and really booming. But you're seeing all over the place in this neighborhood people buying up commercial spaces. They're putting in coffee shops, gastropubs. I mean, you know, this area is really developing into a really pleasant place to live. As flippers invest in once-neglected L.A. neighborhoods... There are many who love it. I don't feel guilty. I don't feel guilty. It's good. It's improving the neighborhood, and I enjoy it. Homeowners Marsha Hosea and Jennifer Thistle in nearby Lamert Park say bring on the flippers if they help attract businesses and boost neighborhood value. I, I like to have an uplift in the community where I don't have to always go and shop and give my dollars outside of the community because they don't offer the things that I like in the one or two mile radius. So you're saying bring on the nice stores, yes. bring on the coffee houses, oh, yes. the boutique stores, I yes. mean, at least some of that. Yes, definitely. And raise raise property values. And uh, raise property values. Oh, yes. Well, we, we're looking forward to that. <laughs> we want that, yes. Oh, you want what? what oh, what? the property values. You know, real estate, definitely. Location, 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 right? <laughs> Others, like Eva Aubrey, who you met earlier, worry about flippers pricing people out of their communities. This was a working class neighborhood. When my family first moved here, people who lived in this area were mailmen, nurses, policemen. These were people who went to work every day and who had jobs, who didn't make a lot of money, but they made enough money to live comfortably. But Ava thinks flipping will change that. It's pushing these people out. The younger people, I don't know how they can afford it. The young ones behind me, where, where are they going to go? What can they buy? What, how can they live? What's happening is is they're pushing people out. 
these people who live in this house or that house, they can't afford to live there anymore. Oscar Moreno is a high school teacher from South L.A. who lives with his father in a home they own. He worries about keeping accumulated wealth in the community. People in like Mercedes and Porsches like, oh, would you like to sell? And my dad's like, well, I didn't have a for sale sign. Why would you assume I want to sell? And then they throw at us that we'll give you, let's say, 15, 20 percent above market value to take your house. And so anyone that's struggling, right, will take that offer. Long term wise, that offer that they're giving you is actually a lowball offer because they know even though they give you that 15% in the next 10 years, that property value is just going to continue to go up. You know, when, when you're renovating, dust it gets on everything and you're always cleaning. So. James Blackman knows that by buying a home that's been flipped, he's playing a role in driving neighborhood housing prices up. And that could be a source of tension with his neighbors. Now, James is black. He says that might soften some grumbling about how he's a gentrifier in this largely African-American and Latino neighborhood, but only so much. So he has this advice for other outsiders moving here or other gentrifying L.A. neighborhoods. You, You should tread lightly because, you know, people can be funny when it comes to change. It's it's a weird it's a weird thing you know, like when people come face to face with real deal change in their lives you know like things are not going to be the same anymore some people accept it and are open to it and but some people are are just not and they fight against it with every breath that they take in Jefferson Park Peter Schulberg thinks he can have the home he bought for five hundred seventy eight thousand dollars and is rehabbing back on the market in three to four months his likely asking price well I'd say eight fifty. 850. 850, yeah. $850,000. That in a neighborhood where homes selling for even half that price five years ago would have seemed like real estate science fiction. Coming up, what's the connection between flipping in Beverly Hills and flipping in South LA? Well, it's money, of course, but where does it all come from? Where do flippers get the money to buy the houses? KCRW's Anna Scott has looked into that and found a little-known phenomenon in flipper financing. So in the auction Saul went to, people were plopping down a million dollars or more in cash. Who has that kind of money lying around? Well, more and more, flippers are getting their money from loans, a specific kind of loan. Not loans from banks, but from real estate investors. They could be rich individuals or large groups of investors pooling their money. To find out more about this business and how it works, I talked to Corey Conkey. Nine in the morning inside a Starbucks. At one of the tables, a tall 28-year-old guy in a button-down shirt and slacks types on a laptop. I tried to work in a, in a cubicle for a while, and it just, I couldn't do it. Corey was born and raised in Orange County, about 50 miles south of L.A. In 2008, it was ground zero for the mortgage crisis. From its fallout, Corey started his career working for a company that loaned money to buyers at foreclosure auctions. Literally my first day on the job, they handed me a backpack with like six or $700,000 in it, and they told me to drive to Riverside and buy a property for an investor. At the time, an injury had just ended Corey's first career as a minor league baseball pitcher. The auction felt a little bit like a game to him. We didn't win, but 
I mean, I had an adrenaline rush there. I was shaking. Like, I had no idea what was going on. It was just the first time I got the same feeling of, like, playing sports in, like, a job. Corey doesn't carry backpacks full of cash anymore, but he still works as a go-between for people with money and people who need money to buy real estate. He matches up borrowers with what are called private lenders or hard money lenders. These are the investors you heard about a minute ago. It is nice work if you can get it. When you're lending money, all you have to do is just wake up, go to the mailbox, pick up your checks. So there's no, my toilet broke, you know, the third floor of your apartment building's flooded. If that happened to your borrower, you're like, well, you know, it's, I don't care, you know, <laughs> it's, not, it's not my problem. There's not much data on how big the private lending market actually is. But multiple experts told me it's growing fast, including Corey. It's almost overcrowded right now. It's getting to the point. I think there's always going to be enough property in L.A. just because there's so many. It's just sheer volume. But there's a lot more people in now because, you know, everyone's been making money. It's the longest bull market we've had in a really long time or ever. Just like flipping, private lending is connected to the recession. After 2008, it became a lot harder to get a bank loan. That created an opportunity for private lenders to step in and provide money to people who wouldn't meet bank standards anymore. Another thing that happened after the crisis was a lot of new regulation on mortgage lending to protect regular people like you and me looking to buy a house. But those rules don't apply to investors buying properties to flip or turn into income generators. So that's who private lenders give money to, because they can charge super high interest rates and demand to be paid back fast. Corey has a meeting with one of those private lenders this morning. But first, he has to stop at the supermarket to pick up booze. Corey says it's a little something to foster goodwill with the lender and his staff. Maybe get his calls returned a little faster. Girls like Chardonnay, I would say. And the boss guy likes uh, brown liquor. And do you switch it up? Is it always alcohol or do you bring Mostly them to alcohol. Mostly alcohol. We have a really stressful job and so like, people drink after the end of the day. It's just what people do, so never like candy. No, no one does candy. Not in LA. Corey, how are you, bud? Buy some wine. Oh, how's everything going? Everything is going great. We're about to have a good month. Dennis Rediger is in his 40s. Gray hair, slim, dressed in jeans, laid back vibe. His nickname at his country club is Gatsby. Dennis has about 250 loans out right now, worth around $100 million. That makes him a medium-sized player in this world. He made his money as a landlord. His family owns apartment and office buildings. Dennis wanted to invest that fortune in something low-risk with a nice return. About seven years ago, we started getting into the loan business because we didn't have anything to do with our money. (laughs) That's what a lot of people have done. Interest rates are low, so investing in stocks and bonds isn't as lucrative as investing in a real estate loan where you can charge 10 or 15 percent interest. Though, Corey says competition has pushed those rates down a bit since he started in the business. When I first started, a few companies were charging like 14% and five points, and now we're down to like nine and two, nine and one and a half. I mean, that's just, and that's over, you know, five years, six years, because of the sheer number of volume and people are getting in, because it is a very safe industry. It's this, you know, probably one of the second oldest professions in the world. Corey leaves Dennis's office in Burbank and drives to Beverly Hills to a two-story Spanish-style mansion that's under construction. This is one of the properties Corey's set up a loan on. The actress who played either the good witch or the bad witch in The Wizard of Oz once lived here. Corey's not sure which witch. Six investors, actually three married couples, bought this house together for $6 million. 
They plan to flip it for 15 million. To get that much... We need to have a pool, you need to have a spa, you need to have a view. Mm. Or if you don't have a view, you need to have land. You know, you need to have a gym, a screening room. You have to have some kind of like theme or like Hollywood kind of feel to the house. You're gonna have like the LA actress kind of, you know, movie star theme. It's gonna have all that other stuff too. More than doubling the value of this house could raise the value of all the houses around it too. How expensive can this neighborhood get? Uh, there's a house in Bel Air right now uh, that's for sale for 250 million. A house in Bel Air for 250 million? And then I think that's the most expensive house around. So I guess it could go up quite a bit. You should take a look at it. It's pretty stupid. So Anna, what does selling a giant house in a rich area like Beverly Hills have to do with flipping a house in like South LA? Well, first of all, these lenders aren't just giving money to people in Beverly Hills. These house flips that they're funding are also in places like South LA. But besides that, let's say you have $2 million to spend, you want to buy a house in Beverly Hills. Well, you come to this street and you see that that's out of reach for you. So maybe you go look in Culver City or Silver Lake. That makes those neighborhoods more expensive and on down the line. You know, these super aggressive lending practices, I can't help but think about what happened before the financial crisis in 2008. Is, is there a connection there? Is, is one like the other and should we be worried? It's hard to say. It's true that there are similarities. And Saul, you're not the only person who feels uneasy hearing about this industry. Dave Min, a law professor at UC Irvine who specializes in banking regulation and real estate, said the same thing about being reminded of pre-2008. One of the myths of the crisis was that these were all poor borrowers trying to buy a home. And in fact, people who've studied what happened with housing prior to the crisis know that in fact, A lot of these loans that were made pre-crisis were loans made to investors of exactly the type you're describing in this new phenomenon. These were house flippers. But these lenders aren't connected to the economy in the same way that banks are. And they're not lending money to the average house hunter looking for a home to live in. So it's just really hard to analyze the pitfalls here. It's hard to say what would happen even if a bunch of them failed all at once. It is worrisome. It's not quite at the level where it might be something that we should be overly concerned about, but it's not something we should ignore given past history. For now, though, people in the industry are super bullish about it, like the lender who provided the money for that Beverly Hills house. Hi, I'm Sean Miller, the uh, CEO of Five Arch Companies. Five Arch is really big in this world. They've got about a thousand loans out at any time in 20 states. In LA, Sean sees endless opportunity because he says cities are more desirable than ever. Leading up to 2008, developers built thousands of homes out in the suburbs. 30 to 70 miles away from downtown Los Angeles. That seems to be changing in front of our eyes. The younger generations have this real sense of community and wanting to be much more close to where they work. He's talking about young people like James Blackman, the actor you heard from earlier, who bought the flipped house in South L.A. People like James want to settle in big cities, but a lot of the housing stock is old. It needs to be fixed up, just like bridges or roads. And Sean says that's what his company does. You take uh, Brooklyn in New York as a perfect example, where you may have brownstones that literally were at the turn of the century, last century. So instead of really financing a home builder, building a track of a thousand new homes, 60 miles from downtown Phoenix or LA or Dallas, we get to spend a lot of our time looking block by block at homes 
that are in the areas that the next generation want to be. And you can really marry a little bit of the old with the new. And that product is not going away tomorrow. Do you see private lending as being at all connected to gentrification? Does it facilitate people coming in and fixing things up and prices going up? Look, I, I, I'll tell you what we do think. I mean, it's certainly better for neighborhoods that haven't had a lot of capital improvements to have more capital go in the neighborhood. I mean, that's like a given. Sean says companies like his are little drivers of neighborhood change. They're like barnacles on the big drivers. He gave me a couple of examples of big drivers. The new Rams football stadium being built in Inglewood, the acres of development around USC. Those are movements that come into an area which can shift like the demographics of miles and miles around them by the sheer scale of them. And then really more grassroots efforts from people like ourselves, which really I think are assisting in allowing for these neighborhoods to slowly start to pivot and give more investors and more people confidence that every day goes by, there's going to be more improvement and, and sort of a higher quality of products. And, and certainly that would be a neat thing to happen. When we talk about gentrification in L.A., so much attention gets focused on the huge projects like Sean just mentioned, or like the Hollywood Crossroads housing development we talked about in episode one. But a lot of neighborhood change happens one house at a time, with no city hearings or public attention, like properties that get flipped. And the money behind those tiny changes, it's like an invisible river. You can't see it when you're walking down the street, but you can definitely see its effects. For every house or apartment building that gets fixed up and sold, there could be one, two, or dozens of investors hoping to turn money into more money. Next time on There Goes the Neighborhood LA, are artists and other creative types the perpetrators or victims of gentrification? If you want to call this place the Arts District, then you need to make it so that we can stay in the Arts District. And if we can't stay in the Arts District, then you need to change the name from the Arts District to the Luxury District, or to the Douchebag River District, or to the, let's call it the Silicon Lofts. Listeners, we really want to hear about your own experiences involving change in L.A. or wherever you live. Go to kcrw.com slash there goes the neighborhood. Last week, we asked for opinions about our show focused on black communities facing gentrification. On our Facebook page, one listener brought up the phenomenon of black flight or middle class African-American families who leave urban areas for the suburbs. Well, I drove out to Moreno Valley about 70 miles east of Los Angeles. It's a community that since the 90s has seen a big increase in black families who relocated there from L.A. I met ex-Angelino Delphine Johnson, who moved with her kids to Moreno Valley 11 years ago and has no regrets about the decision. Let me tell you, when I go back down there to L.A. County, I'm just like, oh my God, can I hurry up and get home? Because it's just so congested, there's so much going on and out here. I feel peace and, you know, my neighborhood. And you know what? I really enjoy not hearing helicopters flying over my head all night and sirens blazing down the streets. I really enjoy that. And, and I feel that people here respect their home, their community, their church, and it makes a big difference. It does. It makes a big difference for all of us. You're a proud suburbanite. I am so proud to be here. And I'm not going anywhere. If I go anywhere, I'm going farther that way. <laughs> You're pointing east. Yes. <laughs> 
You can also find There Goes the Neighborhood LA on Apple Podcasts. So subscribe and tell your friends to subscribe and please leave a review. There Goes the Neighborhood's reporter is Anna Scott. Our producer is Miguel Contreras. And remember how he told you he's facing eviction right now? Well, he's here with an update. That's all. Um, so as far as I know, the new owner of my building still plans to tear it down and raise the property all around it. But the good news is that I got an extension till June of 2018, which is almost nine months. And it's great, but it's just delaying the inevitable, which is that I'm going to have to leave and find a new place. Actually reporting on all this stuff, what I've learned is you kind of have to take the little wins because often it's the only win you're going to get. Thanks, Miguel, and all the best. Thank you. Going back to our credits, Celeste Wesson is our editor, Sonia Geis is our managing editor, our recording engineers are Ray Guarna and J.C. Swadek. At WNYC Studios, our producer is Paige Cowett, our executive producer is Karen Frillman, and Casey Means is our technical director. Our composer is Hannes Brown, with additional music by Terrence Blanchard. I'm Saul Gonzalez. This series is supported by the Conrad N. Hilton Foundation. Thanks for listening.